0: The Podcaster's Guide to the Conspiracy, brought to you today by Josh Edison and Professor Brian L. Keeley. Hello and welcome to the Podcaster's Guide to the Conspiracy here in Auckland, New Zealand. I'm Josh Edison and in Claremont, USA, it's Professor of Philosophy and Tree Falling in the Woods When No One's Around, Professor Brian L. Keeley.
1: Good to see you, Josh. glad to uh, meet up with you again. Another week of Conspiracy Theories and Philosophy.
0: Indeed. So we've um, we've got another paper to look at this week, and it's another one by that that wacky individual Ian Dentith, doing their thing off in Zhuhai, China. Your your contemporary and my former I want to say drinking buddy, but I don't actually drink. But we did we did go <laughs> on a few pub crawls at university, so I guess that counts. I was having I was on the soft drinks, but yes. Yeah, so it's not 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 the first time we've heard from Dr. Dentith. Uh, probably uh-huh. won't be the last. Uh, But this one, this particular paper is called Conspiracy Theories on the Basis of the Evidence. Mm. And it was a bit of a bit of a long one. I don't I I think you might you might have to stop me from time to time if I start flying through this too quickly, because. um, Well, I I, I can read the abstract and get
1: us get us going here. Um, Mm. So, yeah, conspiracy theories on the basis of the evidence. Uh, So the abstract is. Conspiracy theories are often portrayed as unwarranted beliefs, typically supported by suspicious kinds of evidence. Yet contemporary work in philosophy argues provisional belief in conspiracy theories is at the very least understandable. Interesting typo in the uh, abstract there. (laughs) Um, Let me, let me, let me read that as the way I think it was meant to be uh, written. Yet contemporary work in philosophy argues in the belief uh, argues provisional belief in conspiracy theories is at the very least understandable because conspiracies occur and if we take an evidential approach judging individual conspiracy theories on their particular merits belief in such theories turns out to be warranted in a range of cases drawing on this work i examine the kinds of evidence typically associated with conspiracy theories showing that the evidential problems typically associated with conspiracy theories are not unique to such theories as such, if there is a problem with conspiracy theorists' use of evidence, it is one of principle. Is the, conspira- is the principle which guides their use of evidence somehow in error? I argue that whatever we may think about conspiracy theories generally, there is no prima facie case for a skepticism of conspiracy theories based purely on their use of evidence. So yeah, it's one of these papers where they try to argue that you know, sure, conspiracy theorists uh, have some dodgy use of evidence, but that's not unique to conspiracy theories, right? That uh, bad theories of all types, uh, one of the things that makes bad theories, bad theories of all types is a misuse of data or misuse of evidence in one way or another. But there is no kind of unique thing about conspiracy theories when they are bad uh, that they you know make a particular kind of mistake. Uh, and uh, and I have to say, from the abstract, I'm I was nodding my head, uh, hmm. uh, thinking like, okay, yeah, I, I I like where this is going. So I was I was excited to to read on to see what Emma had to say.
0: Yeah, yeah. And I think there's a lot of there's a lot familiar here um going through. I think we'll see there's a lot of reference to earlier papers that we've seen before, which is why I think maybe we can skip quickly over some of the parts as they're uh-huh. summarizing things we already know. But it's yeah, so going through a whole lot of existing stuff, but all specifically through the lens of, of evidence and and um how evidence comes into play when you're looking at these things called conspiracy theories. Uh-huh. So we have a bit of an introduction, um, which begins, there is, it is fair to say, a stigma about against conspiracy theories in popular discourse. After all, there are an awful lot of theories about putative conspiracy conspiracies, and many of them, at least some of us think, are poorly evidenced, Um, and then goes through the familiar, to us at least, definition of a conspiracy theory, um, while maintaining that they should be assessed on their evidential merits. um, And then says, as will be be argued in this article, the kinds of evidence conspiracy theories appeal to when proposing or defending their conspiracy theories are not that problematic when considered properly. If there is an issue with the evidence used in support of conspiracy theories, then it is an issue of principle. The evidence is being abused or just not being used appropriately. To show this, we'll examine the kinds of problematic evidence and evidential practices associated with conspiracy theories. And then just gives a bit of a rundown of the sections that we will be going through now. Mm-hmm. And then concludes the introduction with a quick little little subpoint section one point one on conspiracy theorists, basically just pointing out, um, referring to to Charles Pigden's earlier work that the term conspiracy theorist may have pejorative connotations, but we're all conspiracy theorists one way or another.
1: Yeah, the the thing I like about, about the, the paper also is I'm I'm often telling my students uh, when they're writing papers that uh, I like the it's I think I've always heard it referred to as the public speaker's rule of thumb. Uh, Which is, there's three rules. Tell them what you're going to tell them, then tell them, and then tell them what you told them. And this paper nicely sets up the telling them what he's going to tell us, and then they're going to get into the actual telling us and then nicely they wrap it up nicely at the end.
0: Yes. Yes. No. Definitely. Good. Good bit of structure to it. But so we move into section two, two of nine, I should say.
1: A lot of sections.
0: A lot of sections, but some of them are some of them are big and some of them are are smaller. But two. So so this first section is quite um, one of the bigger ones, I think. It's called evidence selection and manipulation. And it starts by saying people worry about the way in which conspiracy theorists present evidence for their conspiracy theories. And it goes on to talk about the the, the specific worry they have that we're talking about here, specifically selectiveness, which is defined as the presentation of carefully selected propositions from a wider pool of evidence to make a candidate explanation look warranted when otherwise it might not be. And it goes through the examples of of 9-11 truth. Um, conspiracy theories, as, as an example of things that people say, is uh, can, can be quite selective with their evidence, uh, which is something I remember mm-hmm. looking at the, the the loose change documentary in the past. That was one where a, a complaint, a major complaint to that is that it is quite selective with the evidence it cho- uh, chooses to pro- uh, show to us, or out of out of all the possibility. Um, so, so M says there are two kinds of alleged selectiveness on the part of the conspiracy theorist here. The first is the selection of snippets of the total evidence, and the second follows from the first—that the framing of this evidential subset as strongly suggesting a particular conclusion. Um, so, mm-hmm. yes, again, I mean the, uh, uh, the loose change example that the, when mm-hmm. people notoriously would. Look at all the photographs of wreckage on the lawn of the Pentagon, and pick the one of them where there isn't actually a lot of wreckage in frame, and say, "Oh, look, where's all the wreckage?" So I think that's that's mm-hmm. a very blatant example of it. But there are there are lots there. Yep. Um, so then refers to um, Kasim Kasam, who we've looked at before, and his um, his if, if you recall his fictional conspiracy theorist Oliver. Uh Um, who he used as his example in that that paper of his. um, He says, Kasim Kassam, using the example of a fictional conspiracy theorist, Oliver, puts the second kind of selectiveness down to the epistemic vice of gullibility, on the part of conspiracy theorists generally. But the answer to that is that, that every explanation involves selecting evidence to some extent. I mean, there's uh-huh. there's, there's way more evidence than can ever be presented in, in any one particular case. Uh-huh. So as inputs puts it, as such, the worry about the selective use of evidence with respect to conspiracy theories must center on the question of whether the subset of evidence was manipulated to suggest a conclusion that might not follow should we have access to the total evidence. And so it seems Kassam thinks that conspiracy theorists use selective evidence because they're gullible. Um, but even if gullibility is the issue, this, this, this Oliver, the fictional conspiracy theorist, they're not gullible because they're a conspiracy theorist. Gullibility might be a problem, but it's not, it's not um, due to the fact that they're uh, putting forward the conspiracy theory.
1: Yeah. And we also have that, that line from, uh, I think it was Charles Pignan's response that, you know, kind of throwing that charge back in, and Kassam's face and saying, wait a minute, aren't, how are you just not being gullible and accepting the, you know, the official story, right? Mm. It's not like, you know, it's not like Kasam has given us any strong evidence that, uh, that he's investigated 9-11 and, and looked through the reports and has concluded on the basis of that careful consideration of the evidence that, you know, that it wasn't an inside job, that it was exactly as uh, uh, the official story says. I mean, Kassam may have done that. Uh, but there's no evidence of that, uh, which leaves him open to the possibility that, well, aren't you just simply being gullible? Mm. You're committing you're committing the exact same fallacy, just in the opposite direction or in favor of the opposite conclusion. I guess it's not gullible. There's almost this idea that, well, it's not gullible if you're if it leads you to the truth, and yeah. you know, we have this, we have this antecedent reason for thinking this is true, and therefore, but you know, but hold on, that's just again begging the question. Mm.
0: Yes, yeah, so M. M, M Hammers own the point that, that worries about selective evidence, they're not an issue for only conspiracy theories. Any uh-huh. discipline needs to look out for it. M. says that people select evidence because, A, citing all the available evidence would clutter the narrative, and B, uh-huh. only some of the available evidence is salient. And this the sort of the salience of the evidence becomes the, the major issue.
1: And, and, and this is actually one of the spots where I kind of take issue with M.'s argument because I think, as M lays it out, the historians—I mean, yes—I give M the idea that you know selection on its own is not the problem, right? Because as as M points out, you know everybody selects, right? You you just can't you know conduct life hmm. <laughs> or, or conduct any kind of a case without being selective. It's you know life's too short to give all the evidence. Or you know, especially especially when you think about the fact that you might have to wait around for some evidence. Not all the evidence is ever in because we're always collecting and things are resulting from investigations. But then he go, then M goes on to say, oh, but you know, both are selective, and then points out, you know, here are some reasons why historians, for example, are selective. Right, they don't cite all the evidence because it would clutter their narrative, and the only you know only some of the evidence is salient. But that then points to I think what is you know what somebody like Kassam can come back and say yeah the point i was making is not that it was selective per se but it was unprincipledly selective as as you know like these are some principles for uh for why you might be selective And especially the worry like the example you just gave a few minutes ago of somebody who's going through the photos of the, you know, the Pentagon plane crash and then pulling out specifically the ones that support their hypotheses and selectively ignoring the ones that undermine their hypothesis. It's like that's not just, you know, picking things out on the element of salience and it's not just picking out things because it would clutter the narrative. That seems to be selective in a very pernicious way, right? It's actually mm-hmm. the 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 principle of selection is does it make my my thesis look correct? And that seems to be a form of selectivity that you know, if conspira- any given conspiracy theorist who were to do that, or any theorist, right? And, and I think that's going to be part of M's point: is any theorist that, that's badly selective in that way is is going to have a bad bad theory. Still willing to give him the point that this is not anything unique or special to conspiracy theories, but at least I my impression is, is that when people make this kind of selectivity argument against uh conspiracy theorists, it's because they are at least positing a particular kind of trend that people are s- starting with their thesis. Uh, and then selectively picking the evidence, cherry picking, maybe. Instead, is, a, is a, a better phrase than than selectivity, as cherry picking is a very specific kind of, of selectivity mm. that is problematic.
0: Yeah, yeah. So, Em does go on to say that that the the the, the, the methods by which you select evidence is is sort of principled, and mm-hmm. what um, actually, actually, I might as well just quote rather than mm-hmm. tangle myself up in my own words. Em says. In each of these cases, there's a principle involved which explains not just why the evidence has been selected, but also what counts as evidence. That is, the theoretical underpinnings of our inquiries informs our judgments about what even counts as salient evidence in these cases. So I think, yeah, maybe... Yeah, the accusation of someone being selective um, really needs to be the accusation that someone has has applied to the wrong pr- principle to their method of selecting uh-huh. evidence. They're being selective in the wrong way, such as such as cherry picking. But this section uh, finishes up with the the, the paragraph. What seems to motivate our worry about the conspiracy theorists' use of selective evidence is our belief that conspiracies are unlikely or irrational to believe. That is to say, we judge the evidential merit of conspiracy theories on the principle that evidence for such theories must be hard to come by. Thus, the apparent and compelling evidence for a particular conspiracy theory must be the product of some kind of misrepresentation.
1: Yeah, and I think my, I mean, I I agree with the ultimate conclusion that M comes to here, I just I just find this I mean maybe it's because we've got nine sections and and is trying to get through a variety of different points it just seems to me that that a little bit a little more uh, a little more argumentation would need to be required to to really nail down this point that I think ultimately mm. can be nailed down but uh yeah that that's my takeaway on this it's like I'm not too bothered cuz I think ultimately the conclusion is right but I think there might be a, still a little bit more of the dialectical back and forth would have to to be explored to show mm really nail down the point
0: yeah yeah so there, there's another little a section 2.1 a little little addendum to this oh. bit on checks and balances which just basically brings up the point that um, there is you can guard against um, evidence which has been badly selective however oh. you define badly um, but certainly by the fact that it, it, it's possible theoretically at least to check the entire body of evidence yourself and you know it it, it is possible we we can say that say the the photographs of the uh pentagon lawn and loose change were were cherry picked and badly selected because we can ourselves go and look at all of the photographs and say oh hang on they've only picked the ones that suit their case so there is a possibility of a, a balance against that uh, unless there isn't, um, which there is, there is in the case that you know sometimes things are classified. You know sometimes when you're talking about stuff where the the total body of evidence um, isn't actually available to the general public, and that that in that case you can possibly have a problem. But that's just a little a little side point. There. I've in the past we've we've seen bits and papers where uh, th- there's a little section added that. Um, that seems a little bit out of place. We're not quite sure where it's there. I, I'm now, I, I've since been told that basically any time you see something like that, it's because it's to, to get to shut up a reviewer, essentially. It's, That's it's my a understanding. It's response to it's, the reviewer number two, hmm, yes. Um, somebody here yeah, made a point, so maybe this one of those. But at any rate, the paper continues on to talk about errant data, referring to some, some fellow called Brian L. Keeley, I think. Not sure. Uh, That that loser again. Okay, well, let's see what they say. Sounds like an interesting fellow. Um, uh, Talking about errant data, in particular, two kinds of errant data. The errant unaccounted for data, namely data which supports one explanatory hypothesis but is unaccounted for, is not mentioned or explained by some rival, and then errant contradictory data, which is data cited in favour of one explanatory hypothesis which contradicts another rival hypothesis. Um, and so this basically goes, uh, essentially goes through your your papers when you mm-hmm. talked about this stuff in the past.
1: Um, I think they do a pretty decent job laying it out, yeah. um, and. Uh, And I think it largely agrees with me, so uh, Mm. I agree with everything here, yes.
0: Yep, excellent. Yeah, I mean, so it says that in in most cases, theories which rival to one, rivals to one another, conspiracy or otherwise, will cite some data which is errant to each other. So the citation of errant contrary data is no, to quote you, mark of the incredible.
1: I was just going to also point out that this, in, in, in the paper he's talking about, I mean, part of my... Part of my argument for bringing that up was exactly the kind of point that M is making in this paper that there's nothing unique to conspiracy theories. Like hmm. We, you know, it's it's uh, you know, it's it's the strange location of Mercury with respect to the planet Mercury with respect to Newtonian mechanics. That is, that is the piece of errant data that then you know you start kind of pulling on that string of like, why isn't you know Newton tells us to expect the you know orbit of of Mercury to be this, but it's slightly off. Hmm, why is that? That 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 seems errant with respect to the theory, and then you know that then ends up becoming one of the major pieces of evidence in favor of Einsteinian relativity because you know that's that's the bit that leads you away. Whereas you know the Einsteinian theory largely agrees with Newtonian theory except on when you're really close to a large gravitational object, the way that Mercury is so close to the Sun and yeah which i think is the kind of point that that m is making in this paper of like yeah this sort of this sort of evidential work is the same work that non conspiratorial theories do all the time
0: yeah yeah i mean even does say that that Contradictory data can be a problem. Mm-hmm. Saying normally, if we discover evidence which contradicts a particular explanatory hypothesis, then that is reason enough to reject it. Um, but then the point is that, yeah, as you as you say, that's not an issue that's specific to conspiracy theories right. anyway, in, in any way at all. It's it, it's an issue, right. but it's not something that would allow you to say, and therefore, conspiracy theories are a suspect in and of themselves. And so then this, this then leads into a discussion of a, a topic which I believe is a favourite of the disinformation, oh. um, which is defined as the activity of presenting fabricated or manipulated information to make some explanatory hypothesis look warranted according to the evidence when it might not be. Um, Aniem does point out that it, it need not just be the, uh, the product of institutional corruption or conspiracies undertaken by members of influential institutions. Individuals, for example, can disinform others. Um, so it gives an institutional example of the, the dodgy dossier, as it was called, to justify the erration of Iraq in 2003. But you can have, yeah, that, 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 they need not be as, as earth-shaking as that. So this one has a few, uh, a f- a few subsections to the disinformation discussion. Um, starting let, with- let, uh, let me ask
1: you, though, I was kind of struck by the the line that M has about, yeah, individuals, for example, can disinform others. You might disinform friends about your own activities in order to ensure that they do not know what you've been up to. And I kind of bumped on that a little bit because I think of disinformation as being importantly different from simple lying. And what, what mm. M describes about individuals, yes, individuals do lie to mislead others, but th- I always, and maybe I'm just wrong about this, but I've always thought of the you know, der- term dis- disinformation as being more involved than that, right? It's not just simply testifying falsely, but things like the dodgy dossier, right, where you actually mm. generate, you know, like as it says, presenting fabricated or manipulated information, right, where you present the testimony of others that has been fabricated or manipulated in a particular way or or uh, other evidentials sorts of things. I, I just, I found it odd to think of disinformation in the more kind of day-to-day situation. And like I said, I just, I just bumped on that. I don't know if anything yeah. really important follows from that, but it just hit me as odd to, to say that when I, when I lie to you about where I was Tuesday night, because I don't want you to know that I was hanging out with another podcaster behind your back, mm. that that is disinformation. It's like, no, I was just lying to you. I was misleading you but if i were to create you know if i were able to if i i guess i could imagine if i created fake uh receipts and left them for you to find mm. so that you would have fake evidence that i wasn't i don't know how i don't know what the how i don't know I don't know if I can follow this story out, but I feel like uh, it would have to be yeah, more involved yeah, no, for it to really be a case of yeah. disinformation.
0: Yeah, yeah, I think, yeah, you might, disinform- you might disinform your friends about your own activities, I think, mm-hmm. yeah, and that's, you no. Know, you'd probably just ju- just plain lie mm-hmm. and you'd need to do something a bit more intricate for it to count as disinformation, mm-hmm. but yeah. Moving on to the section on counterfacts and falsifiability, so this is talking. Um, about papers we've seen before from Susan Feldman uh, and also Your Good Self, Um, the relationship between errant data and falsifiability. So first looking at uh, Feldman, she says that, Quoting him, explanations which rely on errant data are unfalsifiable and thus irrational to believe by default. Um, whereas you argued in an earlier paper that falsifiability isn't so much a problem; mm-hmm. that if there is, if there really is a conspiracy in existence, then it's not unreasonable to suspect disinformation might be produced to cover it up. And uh, I think in a footnote refers to um, the works of Steve Clark and Lee Basham as well, making similar points. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So, yeah, the uh, and yeah, I I know we've talked about this before that you get the case where this almost is a case where where conspiracy theories are a special case. But but it it works in their favor, I think, rather than being against them, just because if if we believe conspiracy, conspiratorial activity is taking place, then part of that activity could very well be cover ups and disinformation and deception and so on. So it's not it's not irrational to um, encounter that. And then also there's the point, simply, that that, that not all conspiracies involve disinformation. Mm-hmm. Um, so Em says, as such, Feldman is wrong to claim that conspiracy theories which suggest the production of disinformation are automatically irrational to, to believe. Mm-hmm. Given that errant data, both contrary and contradictory, can be a feature of any explanation, we have to assess claims about said data on a case-by-case basis. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Good old particularism. Yep. There we go. And um, But then this this leads on to section uh, 4.2 in the disinformation section of probabilities, which is, well, it, it, it introduces it by saying, this leads us to, to an interesting worry. If you think the government has used disinformation in the past, then it's not unreasonable to suspect they might still be producing it now. And this gets into the discussions we've seen before in, in various places on sort of the nature of society, the open society versus the closed society mm-hmm. and what what would a society in which we could be certain that this sort of conspiratorial activity isn't going on would look like, and it doesn't appear to look like the society we currently live in.
1: Yes, yes.
0: So M wraps this up by saying, the history then of past conspiratorial activity cannot be easily swept away. The principle at stake here is that if we're going to dismiss claims of disinformation and the like, then we need some argument to the extent we have good reason to think the past incidents of conspiratorial activity tells us little about the possibility such activity is occurring here and now. And it doesn't seem entirely true that we can. So again, uh, as, as I said before, I'm, I'm sort of zipping through these things fairly quickly because they're things we've 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 talked about before. Right. Um, but moving straight on to the last last subsection here, which is section 4.3, fortuitous and fortunate data and now we're looking at the um Bernting and Taylor paper uh which I that's that's the one that um that's the one that introduced particularism and uh, generalism as terms to this it is film, it, it is but yeah. this is yeah. Yeah. this that's is
1: probably what they thought they were introducing this idea of fortuitous data I mean mm. it's the thing that yes. shows up yeah. in the title of their paper uh mm. so it's nice to be reminded that that's uh that's what those two authors thought they were talking about yes
0: mm. yeah so they they talk about their... Fortuitous data, which um, defining fortuitous data is something which one supports the official story, but two fits the official story too well is too good to be true. Mm -hmm. And finally, three, the lucky nature of the data is left unexplained by the official story. Mm -hmm. So in this case, fortuitous data is purported evidence for a particular theory, which is lucky in the sense the luckiness of the data suggests it has been fabricated or tampered with. But data which is lucky might just turn out to be fortunate, and fortunate data, as we define it, is data that one supports some theory and two is lucky. And the problem is that it's kind of hard to distinguish between the two because the sort of the, the, the missing bit that oh. is unfortunate is just is just this idea that it's too good to be true, which is a little bit. Um, a little bit vague. How you determine whether something is is too lucky uh, to have simply just be good luck, and whether it, it 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 counts as evidence of of something dodgy happening in the background?
1: Yeah, this was. I mean, I thought this was one of the more interesting parts of the paper in terms of kind of raising some new some new ideas. Like, make this distinction between fortuitous and fortunate is not something that I think I've seen anywhere else, uh, and it's an interesting uh, distinction. And I also, it kind of led me down a bit of a rabbit hole because when I saw fortuitous versus fortunate, I, I thought, well, aren't those just synonyms? Uh, and then I kind of poked around and it turns out that uh, actually M is is correct, uh, at least historically and et- etymologically, at least according to my uh, a- Apple dictionary, there's a, uh, for fortuitous, uh, it defines it as happening by accident or chance rather than design. Uh, but then, as a secondary meaning, it says happening by a lucky chance, fortunate. But then you you go down to usage, and it has this nice passage where it says the tr- the traditional etymological meaning of fortuitous is quote happening by chance close quote. A fortuitous meeting is a chance meeting, which might turn out either good a good thing or a bad thing. In modern uses, however, fortuitous tends to be more often to be used to refer to fortunate outcomes. And the word has become more or less a synonym for lucky or fortunate. Uh, mm. This use is frowned upon as not being etymologically correct and is best avoided, except in informal context. So I think in this particular, more formal philosophical discussion, it's actually making nice use of these, you know, even though synonymous, uh, in terms of colloquial usage, we treat them as syn- synonyms, but instead points out that, uh, that it's uh, there actually is two different words that have two slightly Mm. different meanings. And that's what he's trying to, uh, what what M is trying to capture with, uh, uh, with this particular distinction.
0: Yeah. And what Bunting and Taylor uh, were trying to get forwards in Mm the original paper. So they, they uh, the two of them used the example of the, um, the 9/11 hijackers' passport, mm-hmm. which was found in the in the debris, mm-hmm. which is something that people do jump on a lot and say, you know, that's 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 a little too convenient, isn't it? Surely, mm-hmm. but and this, I, I'm sure this has come up before. I specifically re- relating to this one claim that it's that 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 passport is too lucky to be true. It almost um, that, that that particular claim to me seems meaningless without. A wider context of, of evidence uh-huh. uh, because it's always, that's the only thing people talk about is being recovered but and if it were the only, uh, the only single artefact that came out of that aeroplane that, that managed to survive the explosion and land on the ground then that would be really weird but if it were the case that a bunch of debris oh. ended up there and that just happens to be the notable one then it would be a lot less um a lot less quote unquote lucky uh-huh. but but I don't, I, I honestly don't know whether or not um, that's the case but it as, as Anyway, M's M's reaction to this is that whilst it's true the survival and discovery of Al-Sugami's passport is fortuitous in the sense that the survival of the passport, given the surrounding circumstances, is very lucky indeed, it is the fact the survival and discovery of the passport supports the official conspiracy theory of 9-11, which speaks to this admittedly unlikely event being so lucky as to be suspicious, i.e. fortuitous. Uh-huh. That is, it is the fact the lucky nature of the data ends up supporting the official theory, but not the rival conspiracy theory that is doing the epistemic work here. Uh-huh. So, yeah, it's, as Ian gets down into it, it's more patterns of data uh-huh. that let you distinguish between something being fortunate and fortuitous. Uh-huh. And all comes back to probabilities, which I think we'll be talking about, uh, which we, sorry, which we just did talk about up there, uh, in the previous uh-huh. section. Uh-huh. Um, he says, as as such, characterising some piece of evidence for or against a particular conspiracy theory as either fortunate or fortuitous will tend to rely upon claims about just how unlikely or likely we think conspiracies are in a given context. So yeah, any any one particular bit of information that's it's almost impossible to say whether a single thing is too good to be true. You need to look at the wider context uh-huh. of this, what what else is around and the sorts of things that the people you're making claims about have got up to in the past. Uh-huh. I know I've said I've had conversations with people before who've said they they, they thought 9/11 must have been an inside job and their mm-hmm. reasoning was because it's the kind of thing they'd do the government they get up to dodgy stuff that's that's all the that's all the evidence they needed right right anyway moving moving on we now go to a different kind of evidence in section 5 which is secret evidence. Uh, which gets defined as some piece of purported evidence with a justification for the belief that the information presented as evidence is not just unexpressed, but is stated as being deliberately withheld. So this is the 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 case where people tell you the evidence is there, but we can't tell you what it is. You just got to trust me because it's it's classified or secret, mm-hmm, or, or mm-hmm. bad things could happen if if it went out. So, in particular, in, in the paper, he uses the example of secret evidence cited as a uh, reason to go into the war in Iraq in 2003. Mm-hmm. Name says the problem with secret, uh, talk, talks about the problem with secret evidence, saying, now, If such evidence is not supported with other non-secret evidence, then we should remain agnostic about its evidential weight. If the attempt at debunking of any claim, conspiracy theory or otherwise, relies upon secret evidence, then it's reasonable to treat it with suspicion. Even in cases where the person citing such secret evidence appears credible and trustworthy, there's always the possibility that they are acting insincerely, are mistaken, or have been misled by someone else. So yeah, sometimes there's good reason for keeping evidence secret, but that just that, that, that then moves the question now onto uh, rather than is the evidence good, it becomes is the reason for keeping the evidence secret good?
1: Yeah, and, and I think also just it, another way in which it shifts things is that I mean, if you wanted to be hard headed about it, you could just say secret evidence is never evidence, right? If because it's secret evidence is just evidence that has not been made available to you. The evidence in the case of secret evidence is the, test, the public testimonial evidence from the person who claims to have seen the secret evidence. So, mm. uh, you know, the, you know, so I either trust or distrust Colin Powell uh as they make as they testify as to uh, you know, their uh knowledge of a situation. They know things that I don't know, but ultimately I judge the the testimony of the person testifying, not the evidence itself. And I think in some sense again that's not very different from other cases in the case of eyewitness mm. t- testimony. I did not see it, right? I it's I mean it was, maybe instead of calling it secret evidence we should talk about occult evidence, right? Evidence that is not available to me. It's it's occulted for me. I can't see mm-hmm. it, but somebody else could see it, and the eyewitness tells me I saw such and such happen on this particular time and The evidence there is not the actual seeing of the person, it's the testimony of the person seeing it. And I can judge their testimony. Are they likely to be lying to me? Are they in a position to have, you know, were they wearing their glasses if there's somebody who normally wears glasses and so forth? And the the fact that it's secret is, I mean, yeah, I guess I don't see why necessarily this is any, you know, again, uh, along with M's main point here, this isn't very different from other cases. If it's evidence that I don't personally have access to and I have to rely on the testimony of somebody else, then we evaluate the testimony. And, yeah. and uh, it's just and I think it's not that much different from eyewitness testimony in the sense that you know they saw something that I can't see. Uh, either because it happened in the past and therefore it's no longer to be seen or it is a cult for some other reason. Yeah,
0: exactly. So this this section finishes um, saying, if there's a problem with secret evidence with respect to conspiracy theories, then it is to do with the pattern of secret evidence used in support of such theories. Mm -hmm. However, given that secret evidence is found both in pejoratively labeled conspiracy theories and their rivals, and arguably is used more potently by public officials, Mm -hmm. we cannot claim the citation of secret evidence as an issue for conspiracy theories alone, mm-hmm. which seems to be seems to be pretty much the theme for most of this paper. All these worries that people claim are, are things that make it so we can be suspicious of conspiracy theories actually apply all over the place. Right, right. Now, section six is another one of those. I assume here to to respond to a reviewer. <laughs> sections. It's a very short one. It's called the worry about evidence. Mm-hmm. It basically says that we. We assume conspiracies are rare or non-existent, which makes us evaluate evidence for them more harshly than we would if it was evidence for another sort of theory, or at least some people do. But M basically just says introduces this worry and then basically says that there are still worries about the way in which we talk about evidence generally, Mm. some of which suggest that our attitude towards evidence when it comes to conspiracy theories is problematic in a wider sense. So, uh, yes, it seemed like just a little side point put in there. Um, to, to cover a cover a particular gap. Right. Um, but now we go into section seven, which is size and number, starting with sometimes it is claimed belief in conspiracy theories invokes conspiracies which are so big, either with respect to how long they've been said to exist or the number of people involved, that evidence for the conspiracy should be readily available. As such, the lack of said evidence is taken to be evidence against it. We might think of this as some claim like it's too big to be true. And so here we're looking at uh, Michael Barkun and David Grimes, who've talked about this stuff before. So we have um, Barkun... Talks about the, uh, the, the the classification of event, systemic, and super conspiracies, uh-huh. where he would say that theories about event conspiracies are rational, but theories about systemic and super conspiracies are not rational due to um, essentially to their to their size right. and the unfalsifiability. Uh, but we get to the, the 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 paper by David Grimes, which um, that that one th- this is the one where he gave the mathematical model yes. for. Um, Why conspiracies of a certain size are prone to fail, and thus why belief in big conspiracy theories is irrational. And that was that that one like like I heard about that outside of academia. That particular paper, I think, because because people love it when you can put numbers on something. I think when you can have an equation and say, you know, and I remember at the time and say, you know, according to this, if this thing were really a conspiracy, it would have been found out in, you know, three months or this one could only, couldn't have lasted more than a year before it was found out and so on and so forth. And
1: yes, yes. People, they like numbers even when the numbers are really bad numbers,
0: but they're numbers. Yes. And lovely, lovely, comforting, controllable numbers. So, so this uh, Im's paper goes, Quickly runs, uh, gives a quick overview of Grimes's paper. Why? Why it? it essentially doesn't work so well. Grimes' particular model um, assumes that conspiracies fail because of um, because of leaks, essentially, either because someone within the conspiracy decides to be a whistleblower and, and exposes it, or someone within the conspiracy messes up and accidentally leaks information uh, that, that, that gives up the game. And so you know, his, his model is basically the more people there are, the more chances there are for someone to mess up, or the more chances there are for someone to become uh, disaffected and and decide to deliberately leak information. Mm-hmm. But the problem is the examples he uses, um, in his paper, Grimes used uh, talking about the, the NSA's mass surveillance program, the Tuskegee syphilis experiment, and the FBI forensic scandal. In all of those cases, the conspiracies were exposed by, by concerned outsiders, mm-hmm. by journalists or investigators, not actually by people within the conspiracy, so the, the the model that he's applying didn't even apply um, in his own examples. Yes. So.
1: A, a, a case of selective uh, use of the art. Mm. Yes, exactly. Yes,
0: yes, and and yeah, questionably selective at that. So M says there is then a mismatch between Grimes's chosen examples and his theory about how leaks over time revealed and made these conspiracy theories uh, conspiracies redundant. His examples fail to capture the very thing he wants to measure. This is a problem for both his probability estimates and his subsequent predictions about the putative viability of alleged ongoing conspiracies here and now. As such, Grimes claim that big conspiracies are unviable and thus conspiracy theories about them are irrational. fails to get off the ground. Yet it's still instructive to look at how his model would fail to work even if he'd captured to the, the right ideas to start with. And this leads into uh, section 7.1 which is conspiracies now. Uh-huh. And so um, Grimes, having, having talked about those three examples previously, he went on to apply his model to um, conspiracy theories of the time, in particular uh, moon landing, conspiracy theories, uh, anthropogenic climate Climate change, conspiracy theories around vaccines causing autism, mm-hmm. and conspiracy theories around the covering up of potential cures for cancer. Mm-hmm. Um, but Ian says that there's still a problem here, saying, the problem is that Grimes fails to distinguish between claims about the size of a conspiracy versus its putative structure. Mm-hmm. Grimes does not distinguish between different kinds of conspirators, let alone conspirators. Uh, let alone conspirators and whistleblowers. A conspiracy can look big, yet only a small number of people involved in it might know its full extent or aim. Some members of the conspiracy will be lackeys, goons, or even unwitting conspirators. Not everyone in the NSA need necessarily know that the data they are collecting and processing has been illegally obtained, and FBI agents who were using forensic evidence to secure convictions may not have been informed by senior personnel that the kind of evidence they were relying upon was of dubious merit. It's even possible to be involved in a conspiracy without realizing you're conspiring such size only really matters once you take into account the structure of the purported set of conspirators. Once you take that into account, we account the problem of information hierarchies.
1: And this, yeah, this is a line that uh, that uh, Lee, Lee Basham has pushed on uh, many occasions. Uh mm. gets cited in the next section uh, on the toxic truths we're about to come to. But uh, yeah, that this kind of line, you just can't simply treat everybody as equal as as Grimes wants to do and just say... You know, everybody from janitor to the head of uh of NASA are you know equally in a position to divulge the conspiracy of the moon landing hoax. Uh there's you know, if if you're in a, in a, an organization where there's informational hierarchies and a need-to-know basis, you know, there may be a rather large organization, but only a small number of people within that organization uh are aware of the full story, or at least the the relevant parts of the story.
0: Yes. So so unfortunately, it turns out that thing, things are always more complicated than than you'd like them to be. Uh-huh. When you want to to boil it down to nice, nice, nice predictable little algorithms uh-huh. and and beautiful numbers, but yes, as you say, it moves into this leads us into uh, section eight, the the final section before the conclusion, which is on toxic truths uh-huh. and and those ideas introduced by Lee Basham. Uh, where a toxic truth is evidence of a conspiracy that no one will touch or disseminate because of feared negative social consequences. And so this this is, yes, the idea that um, there could be evidence for a conspiracy theory that might even be widely known, but which nobody will touch or acknowledge, because if we were to accept it to be true, that that could be just have consequences that we don't want to suffer. You know, if you have evidence which shows that the entire government is is, uh, criminals and... um working horribly against our uh, our interests maybe that's just too much but maybe people just don't want to know that maybe things will just work a lot neater if we all just assume that actually things are fine or i'm not sure if this also evidence that could be suppressed for the good of everyone i'm not sure if this comes into i'm not, I'm not sure whether it counts as a toxic truth the sort of thing where people are worried about it because of the effects it could have on them or their careers mm-hmm. i'm thinking of things like i don't know the 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 old Case of Jimmy Savile, where everybody had heard the rumors about the horrible things he was up to, but nobody, including like the press, seemed to want to publish it. I'm not sure if that counts as a toxic truth or not, but it seems an analogous sort of thing, anyway.
1: Yeah, it's a, it's it's and it's funny. Also, this uh, the what's interesting because I actually I've been I was just working on a paper chapter recently in which I wanted to also talk about toxic truths, and it's a bit frustrating because uh, Lee. Has spoken a lot in like uh, verbal presentations about toxic truths, but he has, as far as I can find, he hasn't published it uh, very much. The paper that gets cited here, this paper from 2011 from Lee, has the word "toxic" in it once. Never, never uses the phrase "toxic truth," although it's clearly the idea mm. that uh, that, uh, and, and I think the idea does should be credited to Lee. Uh, it's just a little frustrating to to lay it out as, as Lee himself wants to present it because he's only, at least like I said, as far as I can tell, he's mostly given it in talks and so forth. But one of the ways in which he talks about toxicity in general is this idea that things which would be that would threaten the bedrock of society itself. Like, you know, no good would come of this. Sure, we could throw one particular bad person in jail uh for doing some really bad thing. But if it leads to the downfall of civilization or the downfall of of uh, you know democratic government, maybe that's a price that uh you know I'm I'm unwilling to pay. So I'm going to look the other way on this and uh and not expose it. The Jimmy Savile case, yes, is is one where lots of people know it. I mean, maybe it would be, I mean, I just don't know how threatening it it would have been. Maybe, I mean, I don't know British culture enough to know whether, you know, it is, because maybe a lot of people would have been, you know, would have been uh, brought up in it, you know, royal family and members of the government on both sides. Uh, maybe lots of heads would have rolled because it had been covered up for so long uh, that maybe it really would have been threatening to the very fabric of society.
0: Yeah, oh that yeah that particular case is one thing I, I never really understood either why what what why people were so, so reluctant to to countenance the idea, and to, to the extent that I remember, there was an, um, an an interview with him and by the the Independent, I think one of the one of the British newspapers, where they actually they actually brought up the fact that surely any newspaper would love the scoop of of outing mm-hmm. this guy as a as a as an, a sex offender, mm-hmm. and there the, therefore the fact that no newspaper has was used as evidence that okay, there must be nothing to the mm-hmm. to these allegations. It was very strange, but anyway, m- m- moving on. Uh, more on topic to the next uh, section 8.1 the next bit of this discussion on toxic truths is the polite society mm. and this, this is sort of a way that toxic truths can remain hidden by th- things that are polite fictions that idea of a thing that everybody knows isn't true but everybody acts as though it is true because it, it's, it makes life a lot easier I'm getting a lot of sirens going past my window I don't know if you can hear Yes, that. I, it I, right? I heard I that know. one that's the first something, one I've heard but uh... Uh, some, Something exciting must be happening Anyway um, Yes yeah, so So uh, Eam says that politeness and toxicity are all a matter of degree and context. Some things are politely ignored, uh, giving the example of uh, things like institutional racism and sexism, and some things are kept secret because letting the public learn the truth about them would be damaging. And here gives the example, which actually is an interesting one, of the unfortunate experiment, so uh, euphemistically called here in New Zealand, which was um, was similar similar to the... um, Tuskegee experiment where it was a case that in this case, rather than syphilis, it was cervical cancer where women um, who had been diagnosed basically weren't told that they were, were being within part of a clinical trial and were deliberately undertreated to sort of examine this. And
1: yeah, so and, one... one. And I'm, I'm unfamiliar with this case. Was the was there anything that unified the women? Were they uh, indigenous women, Maori, or or no, just don't poor women? I do so, No, I, I, no, I think. I imagine that wealthy folks uh, probably weren't a part of this.
0: Quite possibly. Uh, yeah, I don't know. I don't know the demographic details. I just know that sort of they. they 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 essentially conducted an experiment without telling the people that they were um, involved in an experiment and some women were given less treatment than others so that they could see, you know, what, what happened. Um, And so there, the, 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 this sort of, talking about this, the suggestion could be that this this is some sort of a toxic truth because if the truth of it came out, that would lower the public's trust in, in medicine and in the in the health institution as a whole. Mm-hmm. And that could have lots of bad flow-on effects mm-hmm. if people, you know, no longer trust mm-hmm. trust the health system. Mm-hmm. Um that's that, that 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 could be a defense for keeping it secret, but obviously it, it was brought to light as I, I believe it probably should have been. And,
1: and may have had that effect. At least I know in mm. the Tuskegee well, case, yeah. it had that effect on, you know, people tr- uh, trace the distrust of uh, communities of color in, uh, in the medical services exactly be- as a result of this, uh, t- the Tuskegee experiment. Mm. I mean, and the other the thing about the Tuskegee experiment that was particularly insidious is that when the experiment started there was no treatment for syphilis so so it started out as let's look and you know let's watch these people over time to see how syphilis uh, naturally uh, moves along and then within a couple of years of the experiment starting penicillin was discovered and and discovered that it was actually a it was a good treatment for syphilis and instead of stopping the experiment at that point and treating the individuals they just Failed to uh, pursue that option and uh, in order because they didn't want to interrupt their experiment partway through because they had already dedicated a couple of years to it. And the fact that the that gave you an idea of how they felt about their actual subjects in these experiments that uh, um, that they would be willing to use them in this particular way.
0: Yeah. Yes. No, definitely. So this, this finishes up, so so we sort of toxicity and politeness, are, are, they're different, but very much intertwined things. And so Em says, the principle behind both toxicity and politeness is secure. There are certain truths about society which might be considered unspeakable, whether that be by edict from on high or by popularity. We cannot expect that evidence of a conspiracy, or indeed any kind of wrongdoing, will be automatically the subject of popular opprobrium. Indeed, given the continuing tendency to downplay the seriousness of sexual assault, the unwillingness by governments to acknowledge, knowledge, alone address, shocking inequalities in our societies. This shows that a certain amount of politeness or aversion to, to-, to toxicity is still a factor in society today. We do not need to talk about conspiracies or conspiracy theories to illustrate that. And that leads us into the conclusion. So sure. Ian's now gone through a bunch of different kinds of evidence which have been suggested as being problematic for conspiracy theories. And I think as we saw, g- generally the answer was either it's not a problem or it's not a problem that's specific to conspiracy theories. Mm-hmm. So it all ends up In the conclusion, um, which I think is short enough that I could just read the whole thing, it goes, when looking at how evidence gets used both in the support and condemnation of conspiracy theories, it turns out we cannot justify the claim conspiracy theorists have lax evidential standards compared to the rest of us. Indeed, the kinds of evidence cited in support of conspiracy theories are also routinely found and cited in support of theories which are not considered conspiratorial. It's interesting that we do not typically find such evidence or evidential practices to be problematic in those cases. We seem to have introduced a high evidential threshold for conspiracy theories that we do not typically apply to other theories. Yet, when we consider the principles behind the seemingly suspicious kinds of evidence associated with conspiracy theories, we find that the evidentiary practices of the conspiracy theorist are not necessarily fallacious. None of this is to say that conspiracy theorists are exemplary reasonants. No one denies that there is spurious or fallacious belief in some conspiracy theories. However, if we're to investigate belief in conspiracy theories, we cannot start from a position of assuming conspiracy theorists are automatically at fault when it comes to evidential concerns. That, as we have seen, goes against to the available evidence. Nice little tag there at the end, yes. Yes, got to got to have a little little play on the words there at the end, right? Right. So yeah, I mean, this yeah, I, I, I certainly agreed with M's conclusions here and the way it went through. I I thought that this this seemed to be one of those papers now that the the field, you know, this I, I I don't think I actually said at the start, did I? This paper is from twenty seventeen, mm-hmm. and at this point, the the literature has grown enough that you can get a. Um, uh, articles like this which didn't really seem to introduce much new but did a very good uh collecting you know good, good job of collecting mm-hmm. all of the um literature about a particular topic um and presenting it all in in one place so i thought it i thought it did a good job of that
1: yeah just kind of collect the yes yeah, so it's it's a nice uh kind of overview and, and introduces mm. some new distinctions and and follow pursues some ideas and and also connects it to the then uh, recent literature. This was, I think, this might be the first paper. Certainly, I think the first paper from M. Uh, or talking about Kasam's work, and you know, as, as somebody was a pretty prominent critic of conspiracy theories with this particular made-up Oliver character to illustrate mm. the point. Uh, so, yeah, it's nice. It's 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 bringing things up to date and kind of bringing it all together in in one location, which is nice.
0: Mm. So interesting interesting to see what comes of, it's also uh, yeah it was interesting to see just the 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 choice to focus on one particular issue whereas a lot of what mm-hmm. we've seen previously is sort of mm-hmm. you know here, here's the sort of stuff people say about conspiracy theories but just looking at specifically here's what people say about the evidence used in conspiracy theories and why that isn't isn't a problem yes um yeah. was an interesting angle to see definitely so yeah i think i uh, good good paper to read. Um, mm-hmm. I think that's about all I have to say. Do you have any closing thoughts before we wrap things up for another week?
1: No, no. Like I think we we've pretty much handled uh, it all, and uh, I suspect we're going to see uh, more from this young scholar, uh, M. Denton. Yes.
0: Oh. Mm. Yes. So if, we, we'll see if things if things go according to plan. I might might be able to jack up another bonus episode interview with him. We've managed to given man, managed to leverage my past connection. Um, Very good. To get a bit of get a bit of commentary afterwards, so possibly we'll do that. But um, in any case, uh, thank you thank you for listening. And if you're one of our patrons, thank you for being one of our patrons. You'll have a bonus episode winging your way. And with any luck, it'll be yet another interview with the elusive Dr. Dentist. Um, right. If you would like to become a patron of the podcast as Guide to the Conspiracy, you can just go to Patreon.com and search for the podcast as Guide to the Conspiracy and you'll and sign yourself up. Uh, and if you don't want to be a patron, well, that's just fine because... You have, once again, listened all the way to the end of an episode discussing a, a philosophical paper on conspiracy theories, and that, that's not nothing. That, we we, uh, that we are satisfied if well. you
1: are just merely edified by our discussion, or at least not extremely annoyed by it.
0: We certainly are. So, uh, until next week, I think it's its simply uh, goodbye from me.
1: And totally pip to you.
0: Excellent.